Good evening, how's it going? Man, it is wonderful to be here. It's lovely to, I feel, I feel like a bit of a stand-up. That's, uh, that's for the key change, right? You know, the Westlife. Um, so my name's Steph, I am Scottish. I hope you can all understand me. I am trying my best to enunciate. And uh, I am a worship leader and a musician, a father of three, husband of one, and uh, very grateful for that. Very, very grateful to be, honestly, I, I don't use that word lightly. I am so grateful to be here. I, I'm sure you'll all agree the last 18 months have been a journey. Um, so I'm going to share my testimony, a little bit of what life was like before, how I met Jesus, and then what's happening just now. Is that cool? Okay. I'm a no-frills kind of guy. My, my wife says she married me because I'm low-maintenance, which is, a, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> so, um, I'm an only child. I grew up in a small town called Musselburgh, which is seven miles east of Edinburgh. Lovely wee place. And my mum and dad worked every hour they were given. Uh, come from a very large working class family, mostly army or nurses. Uh, I was the weird one because I went into music. Um, so uh, my family's uh, something to behold at Christmas time. Something to behold. I just, as long as I do a few dishes, everything works out, you know. I was a very high maintenance kid. Not a bad kid, just very high maintenance. And um, I didn't understand this until quite recently, but I was always very anxious and didn't understand it. Constantly seeking approval, uh, which I'll get to in a bit. And then I discovered music, which seemed to help me to focus. My mum and dad bought me this drum kit when I was three years old and it mysteriously disappeared a week later. <laughs> and then uh, I got this tiny little Casio keyboard, which had a volume lever on it, which was very, very handy. And I used to sit in front of the TV and copy the adverts. So the first one was the Hovis advert, which was uh, the New World Symphony. And then um, the other one was uh, the theme tune to Beverly Hills Cop. So that, those were the first two bits of music I ever learned. And I just used to hoover music. Um, I spent a lot of my childhood on my own, just because my mum and dad were working a lot and I would be at my grandparents with the multitude of cousins that I had. So I had lots and lots of cousins uh, who all had brothers and sisters. And that was my childhood growing up. Um, but as I said, for some reason, I just constantly was seeking approval from my peers or my parents or something. I don't, I, no idea why. Um, I was, we didn't have a lot, but you don't need to have a lot to love your kids. And I felt very loved, you know what I mean? Um, in seeking approval at school and stuff like that, I was 
quite dishonest about stuff, about what my mum and dad did for a living and opened myself up to quite a bit of bullying. Bullying. Um, if, if I start talking too fast, please just raise your hand and I will slow down. <laughs> I go into Scotland mode and uh, it's pretty hard to understand. But um, I got an opportunity to audition for a classical music school and auditioned successfully and was traveling into um, a music school every day at 6 a.m. where I was taught by some of the very best teachers and uh, learned classical Spanish guitar and piano and I just loved it man, absolutely loved it. And then my parents split, they separated when I was 15 and that my, my whole world just cracked in half. I didn't, I didn't understand it. And my mum just left my father and I lost our house. We were essentially homeless for a year, but we were put in a hotel for six months, and then we had a, a house, uh, and then we were able to get our house back. And unfortunately, my, I had no contact with my mother. I was phoning my family saying, where's my mum, what's going on? And nobody would tell me what was going on, and I was just <laughs> frantic, didn't understand. I didn't have a relationship with my father where I could say, where we would talk about how we were feeling. I grew up in an environment where there was no emotional role model. And I know now that's because my grandfather was a raging alcoholic and my father never had an emotional role model. So my dad viewed being a good father as, as long as I had a roof over my head and food in my belly, he was doing his job. But nobody ever asked me how I was doing ever, not once. Nobody ever said to me, everything's gonna be all right. And I just did not understand what was happening on the inside. And I had all these emotions and I needed to blow off steam somehow. So I found myself going out and drinking with my friends, started smoking pot and weed. And um, I noticed that it helped me to calm down and these feelings of anxiety, which I had no idea that that's what it was, seemed to go away. So I thought in order to be normal, I had to drink or get stoned. And that was the very start of my progression into addiction. Now I'm gonna fast forward quite a bit now because this is a very long story. It took 10 years of can drink, because you don't become a professional drinker overnight, it takes a lot of practice. And I could drink hardened alcoholics of 40 years under the table, and I'm, that's nothing to be proud of, I was just really good at it. And I used to think that I loved drinking and taking drugs, but the truth is I loved anything that would take me away from being with myself. I could not stand being in my own skin. It, it, it was just the worst thing imaginable, I just like waking up every day wanting to escape and avoid and, and I would do this before I was a full-blown addict alcoholic, my behaviours would basically dictate my addiction, so lots of dishonesty, unmanageability, the inability to manage money, you know, constantly being late, I was just a riot, you know what I mean? Music was the one constant in my life, I was really good at it. I ended up going to music college. It was a disaster. I was an alcoholic by the time I was 17. And when I was at music college, I was drinking a bottle of vodka a day. And it was just a disaster. 
I thought, I managed to get my degree and I thought, I need to go and find my smile. So I went traveling around Asia where it's 60 pence a bottle of whiskey. Not real whiskey, it was like formaldehyde, you know what I mean? And I was drinking two or three bottles of that a day and just disappearing. I can't remember much of that journey, but I pretty much lost my mind and got back in Scotland two days before the big tsunami that happened back in 2004. And I was sectioned because I'd completely lost my marbles. They medicated me very, very heavily. And I managed to stay sober for about six weeks and I relapsed. I decided to leave home and become homeless so that I could feed my addiction in peace away from the persistent complaining and nagging of my parents who were just desperately frantic because they didn't know what to do. I was so thin. I know it's hard to imagine that I was ever thin, but <laughs> I was so skinny and completely off my rocker. But I was homeless, went into a homeless hostel where they had a TV with one working channel. This was before the digital switch. And uh, I drank my whole benefits in like the space of a day. So I pawned my guitar, which was worth about 2,000 pounds for 100 pounds to buy alcohol and drugs. And that was my life for the next year. I got kicked out of all the homeless hostels because when I got drunk, I thought people were trying to attack me. I know there's younger people here, so I'm having to be very sensitive about what I say, but when I was 15, there was a couple of times I got into the wrong place at the wrong time, and I nearly lost my life through getting attacked, and I'll leave it there. And I didn't realize until about five years ago that I'd been living with post-traumatic stress, and in order to deal with those symptoms, it, my alcohol and drug intake increased as well, so it was just a compound effect, you know? So I slept rough on the streets for a, the better part of a year, which is a tough shift. Begging on the streets and doing all manner of things in order to feed my addiction. Some of it was very morbidly degrading, but you do what you have to in order to survive. And I didn't care what happened to me as long as I got what I needed, man, you know what I mean? Self-harming, suicide attempts, in and out of hospital, jail, you name it, I've probably been there, you know what I mean? Um, I haven't taken a life and I haven't lost my life is probably the only thing I can testify to in that respect. Uh, lots of violence um, and uh, spending the winter on the streets in Edinburgh in 2004, 2005, sorry, was the worst thing I've ever experienced because the cold is literally trying to kill you from the inside out. Um, even now, when it gets cold, I get triggers and I completely shut down and I have to go and have a hot bath or I just wrap myself up in a duvet and it takes me a few hours to recover and I'm just exhausted by it. So it's just a, you know, I, I, I joke that I was, you know, born to live in Hawaii. I should, have, I should live in Hawaii. My wife just doesn't take the hint, but there you go. Um, I knew if I didn't change, I was going to die. I was sick and tired of living the life that I was leading. It is a 24-7 job being an addict and an alcoholic, finding money, begging for money, finding your gear, finding a dealer, finding an off-license that's going to be open, in and out. Just, it's massive, man. You don't get paid, there's no holidays, but it costs you everything. I didn't know where to start. I started reaching out to places, went to an AA meeting, 
everybody was sober. I was like, this doesn't relate to me, so I went out and got drunk. Very naive. But I ran into a charity called the Bethany Christian Trust, who are a homeless charity, an amazing homeless charity in Edinburgh. And they offered me a bed in their hostel on the 13th of February 2006. And I took it. It was warm. And it took about a week for the heat to come back to my hands, you know, because I, I, I don't know if you've been outside in the cold for a long time, but your hands are just cold. It doesn't matter if you've had a hot bath or anything, your hands are freezing for about a week. And then my, I got, managed to get sober and my bodily functions returned to normal. And um, it felt great, you know. Didn't know what I was doing. And Bethany did a, a recovery program, which is based on the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps, but it was Jesus-centered. It was called um, Foundations to Freedom or Bridge to Freedom, something like that. It was a while ago. Not much experience of Jesus in the church. My mum took me to Sunday school a couple of times because that's what good mums do when you're younger, you know. And uh, I liked the stories, really interesting. But I was fascinated by the recovery stuff. Really interested about the Jesus stuff as well. Wasn't really my bag. But the best thing about staying in the homeless hostel was the free food, right? Oh, it was amazing. They got donated lots of food and I quickly developed the Bethany belly, which I'm still trying to shift nearly 20 years later. And um, one night we got invited to a dinner and it was a, it said on the poster, evening of music and testimony, free five course dinner. Now I've never had five courses. If it was Christmas or Easter time, we'd have three courses in our house, you know, which usually was your bowl of soup, your turkey dinner, and your jelly and ice cream. So I was naturally curious what the other two courses were going to be, and then a wee bit disappointed when the last course was a cup of coffee. But, you know, not without a sense of irony there, but um, we had our dinner, which was lovely, and then there was some Christian singing, and then this guy got up and gave his testimony. And he was a church minister, he had the collar on and all that stuff, and I thought, here we go. They've lulled us in with the promise of food. Now I'm gonna have to sit and listen to this walloper. And uh, he's gonna tell me how I'm no good until I've got what he's got and blah, blah, blah. And he never did that. He told, me, he told us about his life. He told us how he was a gangster when he was younger, how he'd done some time in prison. He'd had a life of violence and addiction. But then he spoke about how he encountered Christ and how that set him free and broke the chains of addiction for him. And he said a couple of things I'll never forget. This, this chap's a man called Cammy McKenzie. He's a good friend of mine now. He's an absolutely amazing man. He's bonkers, like, but he's, he's, he's wonderful. And he said, Jesus Christ gave him the strength to break the chains that were killing him and the courage to walk away from that life reborn with hope. And I'll be honest, I didn't really understand what he meant, but I heard new life and hope. And then he said, there's no such thing as 50% free. It's all or nothing. So if you want to be free in Jesus, you've got to be prepared to give him everything. And I'm sitting there going, I really want this, but I'm going to look like an idiot. And I'm looking at all my mates, and I'm looking at all the people that are in there and I'm going, because he invited us up and he said, 
if you would like to invite Jesus into your life and you would like to follow him as your Lord and Savior, I want to pray with you. And I was like, I really want to pray. I really want to pray. I had one change of clothes. I didn't even have a bank account at the time. And I knew I just wanted this so badly. And I got up and I went forward. And weirdly, when I turned around, all the other guys from the homeless hostel were coming with me. You know, Not because of me, but because they answered the call. And we went up. I'm getting a wee bit emotional now. And we prayed. And we, we thanked Jesus for coming, for living, for giving his life for us, for saving us from our sins, for rising from the grave so that we could know life in all its fullness if we follow him. And I remember praying my own prayer, which was, Lord, I just want a life worth living. And if that means following you, then I'm in all the way. And then I felt something, which doesn't sound like much. This is very hard to describe, but this is my truth, right? I felt something shift. I'd been full of anxiety my whole life. It had become normal. And for the first time in my life, I felt a sense of peace just wash over me. It was like a big, deep breath. And when you've been full of anger and dread and self-loathing and fear your whole life to suddenly have a bit of peace, I did something very un-Scottish. I cried in front of a room of people, right? I'm not ashamed of that. It was just such a release. And I went from a man who thought he was the center of the universe to suddenly looking out to something that I just didn't understand. But for the first time in my life, I knew I wasn't alone anymore. I knew it. And I went back to the homeless hostel that night with something I didn't have. It was gratitude for having nothing at all except this hope in my life. Because this homeless hostel wasn't the Ritz, but I was so grateful for this little bed and for the free meals and everything I'd taken for granted. And the next day, this is gospel, man. I woke up the next day and for the first time in my entire adult life, I noticed somebody smiling at me. I cannot remember anybody smiling at me as an adult up until that point, ever. And people were smiling at me. It was weird. And then I went outside and noticed how much it rains in Scotland, right? But it wasn't blue and gray and dull and dour and miserable. It was silver and lilac and gorgeous and everything was gleaming and I was like, this is immense, man, and I could hear everything. It was suddenly switching from a 1970s black and white telly to 4K, you know what I mean? And it was like Jesus was just saying, come with me, I have so much that I want to show you. Just come with me. And I did. And that was the first part of my journey. I met a girl two days later and she said, would you like to come to church? And I went, yeah. So I went to church. That next week, we became good friends. This girl is now my wife. It took us, we didn't just, you know, it took a while, but we got there. I also gained a son, so I got a kid for free. It was amazing. He's very 22 now, you know. And then I fell in love with my wife. I fell in love with how much she was in love with Jesus. I'd never seen that in anybody before. 
she was just in love with Jesus and it just enveloped my heart, man. So we got married and um, when I was in the homeless hostel, I started writing about my experiences of being an alcoholic and a drug addict, you know, really cheerful stuff. Not really, it was, it was, it was, it was proper folk music. And um, a few years later, I got the opportunity to start writing with, about my faith with a, a Christian ministry called Origin Scotland. And I, I wrote a song called Hallelujah. It was, um, it was about my wife and us coming together in marriage, you know, but at the same time, it was about the Christ and the bride being one together in matrimony. It was, it was just a wee song that I wrote, and I didn't realize at the time I'd written a song of worship. Continued to write, recorded a wee album, got help from my church, gave me a little bit of money for it, and I did a concert for them, and when I shared these songs, they came up to me with a collection and said, this is for you and for your ministry, and I went, what are you talking about? They said, this is what you're meant to do with the rest of your life, you're meant to share the gospel through your testimony and your songs. Now, what I didn't tell you was when I was back in the homeless hostel and hearing Cammy McKenzie share his testimony and I gave my life to Christ, I said, so what do I do, Cammy? What do I do now that I'm a Christian? And he went, that's a great question. He said, I want you to go home and I want you to pray every night and I want you to thank Jesus for the cross. And then I want you to ask him what you're meant to do with your life. And he says, just keep praying it until you get an answer. And four years later, somebody came up to me and said, I'm getting emotional again. This is what you're meant to do with the rest of your life. And that's what I've tried to do with the best of my ability. It's not been easy, but it's been fun, man. Sharing truth, sharing hope, sharing Jesus. And it's... I've had the privilege of going into some wacky places, man. I did a gig for the Hells Angels in Copenhagen Prison once. <laughs> it was amazing. They were really nice. I've, uh, I do a lot of prison ministry. I just want to share about Jesus because I've seen the power of his grace. I've experienced it, and I know that I've seen it happen in other people's lives, but when, when they have had the courage to just invite Christ into their life, and it's so simple and beautiful, but immeasurably powerful, you know. Fast forward to 2015, I got really ill. You know, life catches up on you. You know, there's so many distractions, Netflix, Candy Crush. You take your eye off the prize, suddenly I'm out on tour constantly, and I'm... I'm watching movies instead of reading my Bible, you know, taking stuff for granted, can't be bothered praying, you know, eating tubs of Ben and Jerry's like it's homemade Prozac, you know what I mean? It's a, I'm a comfort eater. There was a lot, and the truth, it's because I wasn't honest, right? I'm going to be honest with you now. I wasn't honest with my wife, my family, my church about things that had happened to me as a kid things that had happened to me when I was homeless because I was so scared of rejection. I had these misconceptions that people would judge me in a certain way and they would abandon me. This was fear from stuff that happened to me with my mother. And I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I, 
convinced myself I've been sober for eight years, I've cracked it, I'm going to have a drink. But instead of going, being honest and going to my wife and saying, I'm going to have a beer, darling. I went and bought a bottle of mouthwash and drank that because that's not a real relapse, right? It's not really a relapse. And a week later, my wife came into my studio and said, it's stinking a mint in the house. What the heck's going on? And she looked in the drawers and there must have been about eight or nine liter bottles of Listerine, which I'd, I'd drank, right? And I'm sozzled. It almost killed me. And that set off a number of relapses, which put me in the hospital and it totally destroyed us. Now, my wife left for a short period of time, not because she didn't love me. She said, I am terrified we're going to walk in and the kids are going to see you successfully, successfully having taken your life because I was trying. I wasn't very good at it. I didn't want to die. I just didn't know how to deal with the pain. And, for, and this is my experience of suicide. It was my way of trying to quell that pain, to make it stop. I got some help from our wonderful NHS. I ended up in hospital for over a year for the addiction part of it. But the consultant who was in recovery said, alcohol and prescription medication aren't your problem, mate. They're the solution to your problem. We need to get you off all of that and find out what's making you tick the way that you do. And that's what they did. They got me involved in a 12-step program. I hated all of you. Every single Christian, I hated the world, I hated myself, I hated my wife, I hated God. I mean, how could this happen to a Christian? How could a relapse when somebody had everything suddenly go wrong? But the truth was, we're, the truth is we're only as sick as our secrets, right? And I couldn't get honest about that stuff. It wasn't that I lied, it's just I, did, I, I carried about that stuff for years and it festered. I found a sponsor, I worked through the steps, I got clean and sober. I was honest about stuff for the first time in my life with somebody that understood. I was able to make amends to my family who were just happy I was alive, man. And when I got to the end of this program, the penny dropped and it was just all Jesus. He was there through the whole thing, right through the valley. But I was so consumed by self, I couldn't see it. I'd never felt so lonely in my life. My, my sponsor told me, he says, if you're feeling lonely, you probably don't like the person you're alone with, right? See, having quiet time on my own, that's never been my experience. I would always isolate and hate myself for it or feel guilty for having fun, you know? And I said, so what do I do about that? And he said, get out there and love somebody like it's our last day in the world. Get out there and love somebody the way Jesus would. He says, I don't care if it's cleaning your church. I don't care if it's starting a recovery meeting. Just get out there and serve. And I went, okay, everything you've told me has kept me clean and sober and I'm feeling better. I'm going to do that. So I offered to clean my church and they said, we've got a cleaner. Right? I says, well, let me start a recovery meeting. So I did that. I started volunteering at the, the rehabilitation center that I was in. And this paradoxical thing happened. The more love I poured into people's lives, even when I didn't want to because I'm selfish, right? This paradoxical miracle started happening. I started to feel love for myself. I started to look in the mirror instead of growling at, growling at myself and calling myself some pretty nasty stuff because every time I looked in the mirror when I could do it, 
I would say, you're nothing but a fat expletive or whatever, you know, you're nothing but this, you're such a whatever. Suddenly I would smile at myself and I'd start to look at myself. You've had a hard shift, mate. You've been through the mill, you're a survivor. You've got so much you can impart to others because of your suffering. And this is where the grace in my suffering started to shine because I was able to see where other people were at and say, hey man, I've been there and there is a solution. Let's get on top of your recovery first and then I'm gonna tell you where my hope comes from. And I recorded an album when I was in hospital, well, I wrote an album called Gold, which is all about my mental health struggles. I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. I, was, I learned to manage it and I wrote about it and then through writing these songs, I was able to see where God was with me through the whole way because see, people, in my opinion, are like gold. They're truly precious. Even when they're broken, they don't lose any value, right? Even when they're broken into a hundred pieces, they're still worth the same. And I wrote about my struggles with mental health and loneliness and fear and all. And it's okay to be afraid. It stops you getting hit by buses when you cross the road, man, you know? These emotions are there for a good reason. They're there for a good reason. They're there to help you. But I ran away from them my whole life and used alcohol and drugs and sex and all kinds of stuff in order to just feel something that wasn't me. And all I had to do was come to God and come to somebody else and be honest about where I was at. The truth will set you free. It's not a joke. It's gospel truth, man. You know, I'm not honest because it makes me a better person. It is literally keeping me alive. And if somebody's uncomfortable with that, you know what? God bless you. I need to be honest because if I'm not, my life is in danger. My ego is constantly trying to kill me and get me to pick up a drink. <laughs> you know, I need to be honest about where I'm at. I need to look to Jesus, who's my biggest example. And man, I fall so far from his example but I know when I put my best effort in, it brings out the best in me. I've managed to rebuild my life, my marriage. I've learned to cope with mental health. I have up and down days, but I'm aware of it. I can take a step back and do something constructive with it. And I've learned so much from being a father and my children about where my relationship with God is. And I'll finish on this. When my daughters come to me and say, Dad, I'm so happy. Look at this picture I've drawn for you. I'm overwhelmed with joy. I mean, they're no Picasso, right? But they've taken time and it overwhelms me with joy. And when they come to me and say, Dad, I'm struggling, I'm sad, I'm afraid. I mean, this is, these are conversations I never had as a kid with my family, right? I am overwhelmed that they trust me enough to be on that journey with me. And it fills me with joy. So what makes me think I can't come to my heavenly father in prayer and be honest about where I'm at or find somebody that I truly trust and say, man, this is where I'm at. And when I get feedback from them, I know it's coming from a caring place. My father loves me. Jesus loves me for being me. And that is good <laughs> because, you know, I've got lots of warts and I fail hard, but God loves me anyway. And he picks me up when I'm struggling. 
I'm not scared to fail anymore because I learn so much from it and I keep pushing forward. I am a survivor. And if I can put that into songs and share that with other people and if it can help, then I'm, that's amazing. But I just love doing what I do. I get to talk about hope and grace and faith and it's a wonderful thing. I'm now writing worship songs with integrity music. I get to hang out with cool people like Lucy Grimble and uh, get to come to wonderful places like this and just talk about the greatest thing that's ever crossed the horizon of this world. It's Jesus Christ. And remember, in the wake of the love of Christ, the world changed permanently and it was never the same. And he did that for you. He did that for me. And we are family as a result. And it's beautiful, it's miraculous, and there's so much hope to give. It might be harder to love, but the stuff that comes out of that is truly incredible. I've waffled for quite a bit now. That's my truth, that's my testimony. I'm so grateful to God that I'm here today, that I'm breathing. I'm so grateful that we got through the last 18 months. I'm sure we've all got stories to tell. If you would like to chat about anything, Come and say hello. I might not have the answers, but I might be able to point you in the direction. And um, I'm grateful to God, and I'm grateful for you guys, and I'll leave it there. Thanks very much.